So first, I thank uh, Carissa for inviting me. Uh, I must say from the outset that uh, this is work, I don't know if it's in progress, but at least it's, it's work, it's some effort, so hopefully Julian will give me some praise for this. Uh, I started to think about this recently because <coughs> there seems to be uh, recent attempts to undermine non-consequentialist ethics, in particular the doctrine of double effect, using neuroscience and cognitive science to show that they are based on reactions to irrelevant features, uh, such as personal force. Now, there seems to be a large, a strong consensus that personal force is an irrelevant, uh, morally irrelevant morally feature. Uh, so I want to question, start questioning a little bit this idea that personal force is really uh, morally irrelevant. Uh, what I want to say is, uh, at least I, I will not uh, claim that uh, personal force is always morally relevant. There might be cases where it's not morally relevant. Uh, personal force or contact is not the only thing that matters. So I'm not claiming that uh, it's the only thing that matters. Uh, even if it's morally relevant, personal force can be a factor that is easily overridden. So it might be the case that it has not uh, a very uh, strong normative force. It might, be, might have a, a weak normative force. So it's an open question. So I'm, I'm interested in just how it might matter, how it might be uh, morally relevant. Uh, and this is, <clears throat> so I start to think about this because the relevance claim is usually supported by uh, a few negative cases, which means uh, you have the worry that we may be too quick to judge, that it is irrelevant. Uh, so I leave as an open question for now, uh, how much normative force does the personal force has, uh, whether it can compete with other normative considerations or it can override only non-moral considerations. It might be also the case that uh, it can dominate only uh, self-interest considerations. And in which if it conflicts with other moral considerations, then it's usually uh, dominated by the conflicting considerations. Um, so usually you will find this debunking matrix in, in, in neuroethics uh, and, and more general uh, in the recent uh, philosophical ethics. So you have input from several areas. You have uh, from cognitive science, uh, facts about biases, confabulation, cognitive dissonance. <laughs> uh, you have facts from uh, natural history, species, selection, adaptation, whether something is a byproduct of, of natural selection. And then you have <coughs> Neuroscience, uh, which tells you something about the function of brain areas or brain development. Mm. And uh, also you have input from um, moral philosophy and as well as common sense moral standards. Well, the, the fact that this matrix looks like this shows that many construals of what people are doing uh, are in fact mischaracterizations. Nobody uh, uses only facts to derive odds. They always have some uh, normative input 
in the normal standards, whether they are common sense moral standards, whether they are philosophical standards. So <coughs> this matrix uh, uh, shows that uh, even green uses uh, some ev evaluative uh, input in his arguments. He's not just deriving uh, normative conclusions from facts. I think that's a misconstrued. Um, but in the matrix, you can put a lot of facts. You can put also sociological facts. You can put uh, historical facts and, and all the rest. Um, <coughs> but what I wanted to point out here is it seems that at least some parts of the matrix has more uh, debunking force than others. For example, the cognitive science part with the bias in the confabulation. So it's not clear whether the input from neuroscience has such a strong, uh, uh, you were talking about the normative relevance. I think it can have normative relevance, but it's not clear whether it's, it's a weak one or it's a limited one. So th this is a, an interesting uh, objective to, to go into more depth about it. <coughs> so usually uh, researchers who, who work in interdisciplinary settings like moral psychology and moral philosophy have proposed this factor, uh, personalness, and uh, they gave a first cut, you can see this in Green's paper in 2001, so personalness is the, uh, that violation must be likely to cause serious bodily harm, harm must befall on a particular person, must not result from the deflection of an existing threat on a, a different party. And impersonalness involves the deflection of an existing threat. So this is how they define this distinction between personal and impersonal. Now they gave an evolutionary rationale for this, and they said, well, <coughs> this is supposed to ground an argument from irrelevant features, namely that uh, moral judgments respond to uh, harm up close and personal, uh, which is obviously uh, an irrelevant <coughs> feature dependent on the contingencies of evolutionary uh, history. So moral judgment, as I told you, is a response to fam uh, violations familiar to our primate ancestors, uh, driven by emotional responses, while moral judgment in response to impersonal violation are distinctively human and therefore more cognitive. We have innate responses to personal violence that are powerful, but rather primitive, predating our recently evolved human capacities for complex abstract reasoning. Now, <clears throat> this is supposed to lead to uh, this conclusion when harmful, harmful actions are sufficiently impersonal, they fail to push our emotional buttons despite their seriousness. And as a result, we think about them in a more detached way. Now, uh, after other experience, they, uh, Green decided to update a little bit the personalness factor, and uh, they defined it as the agent directly impacts the victim with the force of his muscles. So this account of personalness does not uh, need not personal contact. So you can uh, also uh, impact someone with a pole or uh, whatever. And applications of personal force, so they define personalness as personal force, are not mediated by mechanisms that respond to the agent's muscular force by releasing or generating a different kind of force and applying it to another person. 
And now, of course, in personalness, you can, the agent's impact on the victim is mediated by mechanisms that release and generate a different kind of, uh, of force. So with this uh, updated account, they set up uh, this experiment. You can see different variations of the footbridge dilemma. Uh, this is the standard one. Uh, this is the pole version, the switch, and the remote footbridge. So, uh, there are many differences. Uh, here you also have, you have personal contact and spatial proximity. There you have uh, no personal contact, but uh, you also have spatial uh, proximity. Here, no force, no contact, but spatial proximity, and then uh, you have uh, remote killing in the, in the uh, remote footbridge version of the scenario. <coughs> so, let me give you some uh, uh, the results of the experiment. So, uh, 31 uh, from respondents said that uh, only 31 is uh, morally acceptable in the footbridge, and you can see this the difference uh, between the boys around here. So, they want to show this as uh, support for the for the irrelevance claim. Uh, what is the moral difference between killing someone uh, uh, where there's no spatial proximity by far and um, personal contact or personal force? Uh, and they say that the results strongly suggest that our sense of an agent's moral wrongness is tethered to its uh, more basic motor properties. It also presents a challenge to philosophical theories that endorse the doctrine of double effect on the basis of its intuitive plausibility. Will they bless its shotgun marriage to a normative ugly bride, the doctrine of personal force? Uh, so they see this, these results as, uh, as some kind of evidence for, uh, against the doctrine of, of, of double effect. Uh, <coughs> But before, uh, I want to show you a, a solution that uh, you can find in the literature, and it's surprising, for me at least, that it comes from Francis Camp. I will, I will explain why I, I'm surprised that it came from Francis. Uh, so she says, what if it were possible to press a switch that opens a trapdoor under the man on a footbridge, regardless of the fMRI data, uh, of the general population, moral philosophy, philosophers who object to pushing the man over the bridge would respond in the same way to the impersonal way of getting the man off the bridge. <coughs> so, uh, it's surprising because Francis Cam is, she favors uh, at least a methodological style of relying on intuition. And she argued, for example, that spatial proximity or distance is morally relevant. And I thought that she would say something like that in this case, that personal force is also more relevant. But she seems to, uh, to ignore this. Uh, she says actually from this quote that we, we can keep uh, the doctrine of double effect, but on consistencies, criteria reject people's intuitions that there's a difference uh, between the scenarios. Uh, and uh, for me, it was quite unclear why, why there should be a marriage in the first place. Um, the DTE says nothing about the nature of the means. Uh, it only pits intended means against side effects. 
So uh, it's not clear from the outset why there should be a, a marriage in the first place, but uh, we can talk more about that. So before <coughs> to advance on, on this problem, I will not start with a positive task of uh, suggesting how personal force uh, is relevant, but uh, let me show you how <coughs> uh, I think there's a failure in showing that it is irrelevant. Uh, I think that the evolutionary rational does not apply for the distinction between personal and impersonal. So personal violation or sacrificing one stranger to five strangers, uh, I don't think they are violations familiar to our primate ancestors, to put it bluntly. Uh, I think it's distinctively human to save more strangers <coughs> Uh, by sacrificing one stranger. Uh, what we share with our primary ancestors is rather discarding the interests of uh, out-group members. Personal harm is more about personal conflicts, about resources, status, territory, defending in-group individuals, or even self-sacrifice for kin well-being. So I, think the, I don't think the, the structure of this personal uh, violation is something that we share with our uh, primate ancestors. But at least suppose that this is the case. Uh, in the personal, uh, uh, in the updated version of personalness, uh, it, more, uh, it becomes more clearly that the evolutionary rational does not apply uh, because the structure is clearly distinctively human. Killing one to save five by using a pole or technology requires sophisticated cognitive skills of using uh, technologies, which is recent even for uh, homo species. So uh, it's not clear to me that the evolutionary rational uh, even applies to the updated account of personalness. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll skip to... Uh, now, if we say that if we admit, suppose that the intuitions, people's intuitions, uh, track something uh, relevant, uh, let's see what, what we can translate into more uh, general uh, normative claims. But this is suppose that uh, intuitions are reliable. Then you get something which is <coughs> a standard view of uh, personal force or contact, that we have a stronger obligation not to harm strangers by personal force than by other impersonal ways. Or, it is less morally permissible to harm strangers by personal contact than by other impersonal uh, ways. Uh, then, one standard implication from these claims uh, <coughs> would be something uh, in, inevitable, in inevitable death conditions, it would be wrong to harm strangers by means of personal force if we could do it uh, as well as by impersonal means. If you have two options, uh, then the standard implication is you should choose the impersonal way of killing uh, one to save others. Now, I don't think that the standard view and the standard implication are, are, are true. Uh, I was just suggesting as a starting point which maps that very limited set of intuition data. Uh, and now let me, let me suggest some, uh, a positive account of moral relevance of personal force. Now, one would be the predictive significance, uh, which is uh, reduced to other people's uh, dispositional character via their actions. Now, this is quite 
quite an intu intuitive idea because you find correlations between willingness to engage in certain actions and future behavior. This is something which guides underlying uh, correlation between psychopathy and uh, willingness to, uh, to push the, the fat man. Uh, you also have recklessness. In the incest scenario, remember that uh, the two brothers decide to make love just for fun. This might also be a sign of recklessness in their character, which predicts their future behavior. And also uh, moral violation for, for self-benefit. Uh, but the important <coughs> aspect here is that this uh, uh, normative significance is a derivative one. Uh, which is highly important for non-act consequentialisms. Well, <clears throat> willingness, uh, at least non-act consequentialism, takes great interest in uh, such features which are considered irrelevant because uh, it might be the case that they promote the overall best consequences. So people who are not willing to uh, push the fat man, uh, they might make the, if we have so, such, uh, dispositions, then the overall consequences might be better. Uh, and so what we need is attitudes uh, that to be promoted so as to have the uh, best consequences overall. Uh, now, the, the hardest part is to find a non-derivative uh, significance of personal force. I think there's something to it, and uh, I suggest that it goes back to the architecture of agency, how we uh, conceive human agency. So I think personal force is more exhaustive of agency or of authoring an action. Uh, whereas impersonal loss uh, presupposes editing mechanisms uh, that release or generate a different kind of contribution than the agent itself alongside authoring an action even if there's no deflection of a threat. And this starts to resemble more and more like the distinction between direct and indirect harm, but it, it's, not, it's not quite the same, but it resembles. Uh, and uh, here, you, in, in the case of no personal force, you have no mediating mechanism, uh, whereas uh, in, in the trapdoor or remote killing, you have mediating mechanisms. Now, I'm sure you can question <coughs> this suggestion, uh, but I think that uh, at least we have made some progress uh, since we have moved the debate from uh, sheer differences in people's responses to a debate about, uh, uh, to intuitions about ag agency. Whether agency is, should be considered an extended agency or should be limited to outer boundaries uh, or external boundaries. Now, I think, uh, I'm curious what Julian would say here. Now, there's another uh, suggestion of non-derivative significance, and in order to, to find this, you have to look at inherent features of personal force. And uh, effort can also be a mark of agency. Uh, and this is not controlled in Green's uh, experiment. Now, I wonder, and I think it would be interesting to test People's intuitions when pulling the switch takes as much effort as pushing someone, uh, someone fat with a pole or with our bent hands over, uh, over a bijou. 
and uh, after we control uh, this inherent feature of personal force, uh, it'd be interesting what, what kind of results we uh, we get. Now, one one uh, another inherent feature is uh, <laughs> that personal force is more open to risk than impersonal way of killing, uh, and. This is interesting because it, it at least it challenges the standard implication I've uh, I've underlined earlier. So take for example killing enemies uh, by personal force uh, can be called more heroic, for example, than by mediating mechanisms such as remote killings. Uh, at least these are some provisory suggestions I'm, I'm welcome for. Uh, comments and I, I want to end by uh, highlighting some methodological styles now you have uh, these overarching principles which are very reliable they get a proper rational grounding but they seem too aseptic to uh, rule out a lot of elements from, from uh, what we usually find interesting in morality uh, and then you have intuition chasing which uh, is arguably considered less reliable, uh, but I think it's, it's richer. Uh, Williams said that uh, this overarching principles approach is too far removed from social and historical reality and from any concrete sense of a particular ethical life. Now, I think that the moral irrelevance claim uh, looks more like a truism from the perspective of aseptic philosophical standards than from the perspective of common morality or particular moralities. So I think instead of rejecting intuition data, the armchair should have a closer look. It can take intuition data as signals where to dig deeper conceptually, or the armchair can point directions where the psychological research can dig deeper empirically. So I think if we find interesting moral ideas underlying such intuitions, then the data can actually support uh, intuition chasing. Uh, thank you.